Welcome to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and this is your weekly news show where we explore the issues in city, state, and national politics and policy that are driving debate. And each week, we invite on guests who are both the policymakers and the movers and shakers, the people who are making headlines or those who are behind the scenes working to affect change. And today we've got a great show ahead for you where we focus on workers' rights. But before we get to our guests and our topics, let me bring on my effervescent co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. Celeste, how are you doing today? Good, Jeff. Glad to have you back. Uh, always happy to uh, to hear the smile in your voice, as they say on radio. Apparently, people can hear you smiling on radio, so I, <laughs> I definitely get that vibe from you. Doing well. I'm just watching a ton of stuff, obviously, but the weather stuff has been really, really intense. Just these incredible heat waves and this catastrophic flooding since the last time you and I were on air together upstate, up uh, further up in northern New England. Really shocking. Have we checked on our mutual friend in Vermont to see how she's doing because of all the flooding there? Uh, Vermont. Well, I, I'm thinking of somebody else in New Hampshire who I have. Oh, New Hampshire. <laughs> yes, New Hampshire. And, and she, she is doing okay. But I mean, just some of these pictures are just appalling. Rail, you know, uh, railway tracks being uh, completely washed out. And you've seen, obviously, the, the footage from upstate New York, which is oh, yeah. not that far away from the city. And just I mean, really frightening. That's the only word for it, frightening. Yeah, I had read this piece in the New York Times about how people were stepping up to help rescue others in upstate New York. And it was just, you know, it, this one piece that I read in the Times, was, you know, the blow by blow on just this man, you know, trying to get to people and having to go through windows to get to them. It was just scary. It really painted this picture of how desperate and how sudden all of this was. Right. And, you know, I mean, to me, I think that one of the, well, there's many scary things about it, but one of the scary things to me is that this is now happening to people who did not think this was essentially going to be part of their lives. And I mean, I sort of felt that way. If you think back to uh, Superstorm Sandy and, you know, my, um, uh, my apartment uh, in the city is uh, almost by second Avenue actually. And, um, you know, the idea of floodwaters coming up from the East River and coming up to my building at Second Avenue was just, uh, you know, not to mention anything about the people on Avenue A whose cars were flooded oh, yeah. and things like that. But just, I mean, so I just, my, I'm just making that point to say that, you know, did I think in my life that I was going to have to worry terribly much about flooding on Second Avenue? But okay, here we are, yeah. right? And you know, and also where we are also is with the air quality, everything that we've been seeing happening as a result of the wildfires in Canada here in New York City. Obviously, a significant hearing yesterday, Celeste, before the New York City Council, where I believe uh, the public advocate, Jumani Williams, among others, were incredibly critical of the Adams administration and their 
uh, I don't want to say response. It really was the their in their view they were not proactive. They did not give people enough warning about this. This was a very fiery hearing. The mayoral administration came back and fought fire with fire, saying that they were as prepared as they could have been. But you know, you and I know this. We've we've witnessed this really poor air quality. You know, we haven't had the orange hued. You know. Uh, uh, skies here in the city, but the air quality, we're getting these daily reports on how rough it has been. Right. And and this isn't just sort of a cosmetic thing. It's not like, wow, this looks really uh, freaky and apocalyptic. I mean, this affects people with breathing issues, with COPD, emphysema, like whatever it may be. So it, it's not just sort of a um, an inconvenience. I mean, people are, are feeling physically ill from breathing in this wildfire smoke. And, and of course, that was the question that is, you know, that is brought up here and that's being talked about in these public forums, as you mentioned, Jeff, which is, you know, sort of did were people warned early enough? Were there any mitigations and did those mitigations go far enough? Yeah, very good point. That's, I mean, something I don't think that's going to end right now with just this hearing. I think we're going to continue to see. I mean, obviously, if the wildfires continue, we're still going to have poor air quality. So how is the city going to react and be more? You think of it, Celeste, every time we've had a major snowstorm where the city has not responded as effectively as they could have, then there's lots of scrutiny afterwards. Then we've seen afterwards where the city, like, and I guess some may say overreacts when there's the threat of a potential storm. And then people are like, was that much ado about nothing? Um, the other thing also, Celeste, I mean, you and I have been following really has been the economy and how it's rebounded or not rebounded. There's been a lot of reports on like the retail sector. We'll talk about that a little later in the show and how that has suffered. But, you know, you, that's what we're going to be talking about today is really the workforce, the city's workforce and how the the pandemic has impacted that, but also the freelance economy, because, you know, I don't know if you had seen you and I have both freelance throughout our lives. And there was a report that came out just a few weeks ago by Scripps News that found that the labor force continues to evolve as uh, as freelance and part time work popularity rises with just over a third of workers now in our country taking part in one of the two freelance or part time work. Uh, I just want to note that government data that just came out uh, about a month ago showed that 20 close to 22 million Americans were working part time for non-economic reasons by choice, Celeste. Right. And if you think about it, you know, we've really uh, had our eyes open to a lot of things during this sort of pandemic era. But one of the things that people have come to realize is like, okay, you know, is this sort of a convenient or inconvenient, but, you know, does this present the opportunity for me to rethink how I work, when I work, where I work, who I work for, how much control I have over my work life? And, you know, to that extent, people are are trying to sort of craft something that works better for them than sitting at a desk from nine to five or working shifts they don't want, staying in a job um, where they need the benefits and are sort of feeling locked in. I think that, you know, Freelancing definitely comes with its perils. It can be very hard to pay the bills. It can be very hard to get people to pay you what they owe you in a timely way and not when they get around to it. And, you know, as you say, like I've been freelancing um, quite a bit over the last three years or maybe even longer, actually. Um, And for me, it's worked out. I've had to piece together a lot of moving parts in order to make freelancing work for me. But it's something that, uh, you know, I not really seriously tried before in my life. That being said, though, it does present its challenges, Jeff. 
Yeah, and we should note, because we're going to bring on our guests in a few moments, uh, that there's been some momentum for legislation to protect workers. The Freelancers Union had passed laws in a number of cities to allow freelancers to reach out to their municipality for help if they're not getting paid on time. A big decision happened yesterday, a big victory for freelancers. Uh, Mayor Eric Adams' administration, Celeste, had announced an agreement with a media company called La Officiale USA to resolve a lawsuit brought by the city over the company's failure to pay freelancers on time, fully or at all, in violation of the city's Freelance Isn't Free Act. And this company now has to pay more than $275,000, Celeste, which is double the amount that was actually owed to 41 freelancers who had complained to the city. Um, the city's Freelancers and Free Act, which we're going to get into with our guest, went into effect in 2017. It was the first law of its kind in the country and gives freelance workers the right to a written contract, timely payment, and freedom from retaliation. And since this went into effect, the city received over 40 complaints from freelancers who did work for this company about its failure to pay them on time. But one other interesting fact, uh, freelancers who were not fully paid by La Officielle for work performed between 2017 and 2023 uh, can uh, still file a claim by February of next year to participate in this settlement. So that's something that's very important to note. Um, that brings us to our first guest today, Rafael Espinal, who's been with us before when he was in the New York City Council. He is executive director of the Freelancers Union, a former city council member and New York State Assembly member. He became the third executive director of the Freelancers Union in its history since it was founded in 1995. A bit about Rafael. He was born and raised in Brooklyn. He had become New York's youngest elected official when he joined the state assembly at the tender age of 26, the son of Dominican immigrants who were union members and freelancers. He quickly became a leader fighting on behalf of workers, small businesses, artists, low-income communities, and the environment. And in 2013, he was elected to represent the 37th district in the New York City Council. Now, during his tenure in the council, he was a co-sponsor of the first-of-its-kind Freelance Isn't Free legislation that, as I noted, had taken effect in 2017 after it passed the previous year. So with that, let's bring him on. Rafael Espinal, welcome back to Driving Forces. Great to be on. Great to hear your voices, Jeff and Celeste. Thanks for having me. Before we get into specific pieces of legislation, we note that uh, freelancing can take many different forms. It's not just, say, freelance writers. So first, for our listenership, can you fill us in on your membership and what constitutes freelancers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we are a national organization. New York City and Brooklyn uh, is our home, um, but we represent Folks from all different industries, uh, or, or any you know any industry you can think of, from substitute teachers to farmers in upstate New York uh, to babysitters, domestic workers, and I think what what we're most commonly known for is the graphic artists, the photographers, the designers, uh, anyone who's working off a laptop and, and doing some sort of creative work. Um, we you know we we run a free co-working space in Brooklyn, uh, and there was a, a, a space that's been sponsored by the City of New York for us to run. And uh, it was targeted towards uh, bringing in folks who are in media entertainment. So we have a lot of people who are in the film industry who come in here, who are videographers, uh, music folks. Um, so really, really a whole, a whole span, span of folks in different types of industries. 
And Rafael Espinal, it's so good to have you here back on the program on WBAI. And I want to talk about this. I'm interested to hear what you have to say as somebody who has freelanced myself, as Jeff has. You know, when we talk about freelancing lately, we sometimes focus a lot on the positive aspects of it. It's like, oh, you can make your own schedule. You can pick and choose your assignments. You can, you know, work where and from anywhere. Maybe you're working from a, you know, tropical island somewhere or, or I don't know, whatever. But the point is we, we focused a lot on the positives, but talk to us a little bit about what makes freelancing a hard way to, to survive and, and what, you're, uh, what you're really focusing on there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's funny you mention all, all of those positives, and I think these are positives that every worker, uh, no, no matter whether you're working a nine-to-five um, or working freelancing, I think it's, 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 a, it's, it's a flexibility people were looking for, especially during the pandemic. Right when people uh, were for the first time probably given the opportunity to work uh, tele remotely, um, you know, the, the, it, it, it really helps folks free up their lives, give, give time to be able to tend to their families, uh, be able to work for multiple employers, and create um, you know uh, more income that they would from a traditional job if they're, if they're stuck to a desk. But it, it comes with it comes with its pitfalls, right? Once you decide to to leave. Uh, that traditional job, you you have to worry about uh, protecting yourself as as an individual, right? Now you have to think about the cost of health care. Uh, you don't have an employee-sponsored health care plan. You have to think about taking paid leave. You know, any any day you're not working, uh, th- there is no employer uh, paying you PTO or paid time off for, the, for that time you take for yourself. Um, also, uh, long thinking long-term retirement. You know, there there is no... Uh, again, uh, employee-sponsored uh, uh, retirement plan that are that are matching your 401k contributions. So you're really out. You're really out there on your own, and, and it's, it's really why it's important. Uh, re- it's really why our work as freelancers is important because what we try to do is, is just bridge bridge uh, the many different workers who are who are, who are working uh, on in their own spaces and and creating this community in which we're able to use their voice to fight for for greater protections, making sure that all workers have access to these basic protections, basic benefits that will allow, you know, anyone to be able to live their lives with dignity in our country. And we're going to open up the phone lines, by the way, folks, if you're listening and you want to weigh in on these issues, if you're a freelancer, if you have, we would love to know your thoughts, what we've been talking about with Rafael Espinal, the executive director of the Freelancers Union. Give us a call, 212-209-2877. Once again, 212-209-2877. And please try to stay on topic. Rafael, there's constant worry about a recession, but how does a recession impact the freelance sector? You know, it's it's a uh, it's an interesting question, and you know, if we look back to 2008 uh, during the, the the Great Recession, uh, what we've seen in the data is that more folks turn to freelance work when the economy is down, and it happens for two reasons: for the for better or for worse, right? One, of course, people are being laid off, and when they're being laid off, they're sitting at home wondering how they're going to bring income into the household, uh, and they use that time to think about how they're going to use the skills, the professional skills that they have, uh, to be able to bring on clients and, 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 and earn those extra dollars. It's also a time where people start reflecting about how are they going to create a secure future for themselves. And to be honest, in my, in my humble opinion, you know, freelance work is, is just as secure, even more secure than the traditional nine to five when it comes to you being able to, 
and, uh, create work for yourself and, and have a job, right? You, when you work for an employer, you don't know when they're going to decide to lay you off or whether the company is having its own financial difficulties, where they have to shut down. And uh, you really have the whim of your employer. Uh, when you're freelancing, you know, you have more control and more autonomy over the work you're, you're, you're creating for yourself. So uh, we, we have seen numbers, those numbers, the number of people turning to freelance because of all of those points I just raised just grow as, you know, ex- extraordinary, especially during the pandemic. Uh, just, just to give you some anecdotal numbers, uh, in, in our organization alone, you know, we would have an average uh, about 500 people about a month sign up to be part of the organization nationally. After that, that number has jumped up to 2,000, 3,000 people uh, a week. Uh, and that's because we are seeing more people turn to freelance work as a way to earn, to create an income for, create a create income for themselves and and uh, provide for themselves financially. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and our guest right now is Rafael Espinal. He is executive director of the Freelancers Union. Kindly has agreed to take some of your calls, 212-209-2877. Call in, 212-209-2877. We're going to go to the phones for our first call. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, Mayat from the Cove. Uh, excellent topic and really appreciate the engagement. For those of us who are returning to uh, print uh, freelance journalism, uh, like to know more particulars such as your website and some of the basics of um, joining such as dues and also some of the uh, particular benefits besides just being a collective to to retain rights, and also whether it includes the gig workers like the um, uh, Uber and and the DoorDash drivers. And if you have my questions, I'll listen over the air. Thank. You. Okay, uh, Rafael Spinell from the Freelancers Union. What do you think? Yeah, well, first and foremost, Nicole, thanks for asking those questions. I think they're really spot on. Um, one, of course, as you mentioned, we do we do try to build a collective voice to advocate for our members and, and try to build their rights. But the, 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 the main benefit you get from being part of the organization, one, it's free to join. So you can you can go on our website at freelancersunion.org, uh, fill, fill out the, the questionnaire, uh, and you'll immediately become a member. But what, what that allows you to do, especially if you live in the city of New York, and I'm sure most all of you are who are listening, uh, you get to you get to come to our, our free co-working space in Industry City, Brooklyn. Uh, we have desks that are available for free that you're able to book uh, and be able to co-work, um, come to a place that will help dignify the work you're doing and connect you to other uh, like-minded individuals in our space, but also give you one-on-one time with the team at the union. So if you're facing issues when it comes to uh, filing your taxes, uh, understanding understanding all of the different uh, health insurance and benefits you need, um, uh, having issues with a client paying you on time, understanding whether the contract you're signing is really protecting you. You know, you have direct access to, to myself and to my team. Um, and then we also uh, offer a program, a training here twice a week on many different uh, areas. So if you're someone who is looking to upskill, 
For example, if you are a journalist and you're wondering how to become better at marketing and being uh, getting more into the ad space, we, we might we may hold a class on upping your writing to to tailor more towards marketing and understand so you can again upskill yourself and be able to get more jobs in the marketing space. That's just one example, um, but it's really it's really a, a whole host of, of benefits. Um, and then when it comes to our insurance products. Uh, some of, some of our insurance products that we offer, like dental, uh, long-term disability, uh, uh, life insurance, you're able to be, become part of our group plan. So you're getting rates at a much lower cost than if, than if you were to go out and buy them on your own. So it's a whole host of benefits, and I encourage you to go on our site, join. It's at no cost to you, so there are no dues, uh, and um, we're here to help. So, Rafael, I want to jump in about um, about legislation up in Albany, because this is one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on today. The legislative session just ended, but there was a push for, and I'm calling it an expansion, but I'll need you to correct me, on the freelancers and free law. There was a movement to create more policy change. I understand it passed the Assembly and the Senate. It's with the governor, or, you know, I'd love for you to clarify this and let us know where this stands and what this would do. Definitely. I mean, it's been a, it's been a multi-year campaign, and what we're simply just trying to do it is expand the Freelancers and Free Act, which, as you mentioned, already exists in the five boroughs across the entire state. Uh, we've seen a lot of folks, uh, especially from the city, uh, move to the Hudson Valley region, uh, who are are uh, a lot of them are freelancers and, and and are able to carry the work to other parts of the of the state of New York. Uh, we have uh, a big, a big groups of freelancers up in Buffalo and Western New York, uh, and unfortunately, they, they continue to go unprotected, right? So if they are, are if they are facing, or if, they, if they're working with a difficult client, um, they don't have the same recourse. They're not able to call on the municipality, municipality to step in and be able to collect on that payment. They don't have um, the protections of being able to go to small claims court. And have their attorney attorney fees covered or double damages if they're able to prove that they that they've been they've been wrongfully non-paid in court. Uh, so we're just simply trying to expand expand those those rights to freelancers across the entire state of New York. Uh, we were successful in getting the bill passed in, in both in both the Assembly and the Senate last year. You know, unfortunately, uh, Governor Hochul decided to veto the bill. Um, at the end of the year, uh, which which had which forced us to scramble earlier this year again, and uh, re, re, retry our efforts, and we were successful thanks to Senator Andrew Gernardis and uh, Assemblymember Harry Bronson, who was up in Rochester. Uh, we were able to turn the bill around and get it passed again this year. So it sits on the governor's desk again, and uh, we're just hoping, and we're talking, and we're figuring out that how can we get the governor to understand that this is a, a, a basic and very necessary protection for a workforce that, that just really doesn't have many benefits to rely on. So she has an opportunity to do the right thing. She has an opportunity to show that uh, she is serious about protecting the workers of her state. Uh, and we're hoping she does the right thing by the end of this year. Maybe tell us a little bit more about some of the objections because, and I'm not just saying this because we're on the radio here, but as a freelancer, as a professional freelancer, I've actually had quite good experiences with most of the people uh, that I've dealt with, including uh, 
paying on time, which is something that is a very big deal. You may sign a contract, but then it's 30 days, 60 days, 90 days for the money to actually get to you. And if you're relying on that money, that's a, a serious problem. But tell us a little bit about what the resistance might be to giving workers these kinds of protections. Is it pressure from businesses that have relied on freelancers, including being able to treat them however they want? Yeah, so I mean, to 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 your point, right? The the, the what the, what the law will do uh, at, uh, uh, initially, what it does is it requires there to be a contract between the client and the freelancer, and for there to be a net pay of thirty days, right? Uh, it's a number we thought it was fair for all parties, uh, and again, as and as you mentioned, sometimes that 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 net pay goes up to ninety to one hundred twenty days, uh, which we think is unacceptable. So it really, it really just helps narrow the contract down to ensure that the freelancers are getting paid on, on a timely, on a timely basis, and getting paid at a timely basis when it, when it, when we think about just the cost of living and other factors that they have to deal with. Um, the, the main, the main points of resistance uh, are, are twofold. One, as you, as you mentioned, it is the business community, right? They, these are, these are new laws that they have to follow. It would probably put more pressure on them to. Um, uh, upgrade their their finance team and departments and helping them understand that there are these laws that exist and that they have to pay freelancers on time. Um, and then two, uh, what we heard and, and which is why the the, the governor, um, uh, what the governor cited as being the reason she vetoed the bill, is that uh, the Department of Labor currently is uh, underfunded. And um, they don't have the resources to expand uh, the, the department's abilities to to bring on a, a new a new arm of enforcement. Um, but you know we 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 have we have data showing that the cost of implementing uh, the freelance and the freedom in New York City in New York City, where we have over nine million New Yorkers, uh, where we have over one point three million freelancers working from. Uh, the cost were on it's on it's under a million dollars to staff to staff the office. So it's really a, a drop in the bucket, and uh, and as, and as and as we all know, I think the bulk of the work is coming from the five boroughs. So so the state the state really doesn't have to put put a lot of money into the agencies to get this done. And I, I think uh, um, you know the governor has to show goodwill and show that she's serious about about protecting you know, all workers in the state. And Rafael, I know we only have about two minutes left. I mean, you've been out of politics now for a bit. Any uh, future plans to return? <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't have any future plans at all. Uh, but I do miss it. I do. I do. I do miss uh, being able to influence um, the policy that is being talked about. You know, the issues that are being worked on. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, honestly one of the greatest honors I had in my life, and. You know, if an opportunity arises, I'm not I'm not closing that door, but it's not it's not on the top of mind right now. I love my job at the union. I'm able to continue supporting and helping uh, workers. I have my own constituency I'm currently worried about, and I'm focused on doing the best job I can for them. And I hope that if you do uh, make up your mind to jump back into the political arena, you will announce that news here on WBAI. <laughs> that, that is you definitely got, You working. got it. You got it. I promise that. Okay, excellent. Rafael Espinel, if people want to find out more about you and your work and the Freelancers Union, where can they go? You can find us at freelancersunion.org. That's the easiest way. Or find us on uh, Twitter and Threads, uh, which is the hot new one, and uh, Instagram at Freelancers Union. 
Rafael Espinal is executive director of the Freelancers Union. Thank you so much for coming back here again with uh, me and with Jeff on Driving Forces. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Driving Forces. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here, as always, with the incomparable Jeff Simmons. We are talking about workers' rights, a subject that should be close to the hearts of people here uh, in, in listener land at WBAI. And we're talking also about the economy. In fact, in fact, there was a report out just a couple of days ago that shows that we are still pretty far from a complete recovery in the wake of the pandemic. This report looked at the city's retail sector, which is one of New York's largest industry sectors, home to an outsized share of the most accessible jobs as well. And the Center for an Urban Future found that the retail sector is lagging well behind the city's overall jobs recovery and other face-to-face industries like restaurants, which were hit hard in the pandemic. And this brings up concerns about whether this part of the city's economy will ever get back to its pre-pandemic employment level, Jeff. Yeah, it was really interesting is the largest job losses, Celeste, were in stores that face the most direct competition from e-commerce. I mean, think about that, you know, about uh, what people also migrated to during the pandemic. I just know from my lobby how many people shifted over to, to delivery. I mean, department stores were down, sporting goods, general merchandise stores. It's unbelievable. I know we're going to take a break now, actually, and then we're going to come back with our second guest. And we also will want to remind you folks who are listening on how we're going to need your help to support WBAI. But for now, we need to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about worker rights. We're going to shift gears to something our caller actually mentioned, which he asked about the deliveristas. Uh, We're going to shift gears and talk about the fleet of men and women who deliver our food, many of them immigrants who've been seeking a decent wage for their work. We're going to be joined by Lahia Gualpa, Executive Director of the Workers Justice Project. But for now, we're going to leave you with Other Lives Dust Bowl.
Other Lives with Dust Bowl here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You're listening to Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. And today we are focused on workers' rights. So as we mentioned, uh, we were talking a little earlier about Governor Kathy Hochul. The governor announced that New York State labor officials have adopted new measures meant to protect undocumented immigrants against retaliatory actions and removal due to labor disputes. And these provisions are part of an expansion of rules put in place earlier in the year by the Biden administration. The Labor Department is working with federal homeland security officials and advocates to give temporary protection from prosecution, as well as from potential removal. Now, all these changes come as New York officials are seeking an expedited path for migrants with asylum seeker status to get the legal right to work in New York. And there is, of course, as we've discussed on the program, an influx of people arriving in the state. So these protections are meant to reduce the reluctance among undocumented workers to report unscrupulous business practices and uh, out of fear of retaliation. Workers can submit or have an advocate or an attorney submit for deferred action, protecting them from removal for two years when they're involved in workplace labor investigations. So that brings us right to our next guest, Lahia Guapa, Executive Director of the Workers' Justice Project. This is a community-based uh, workers' right organization that is working for better conditions for low-wage immigrant workers. She's the daughter of a former day laborer and garment worker, and in her role, she's spearheaded efforts to ensure safe and dignified jobs for New York City's 2,000 laborers, construction workers, domestic workers. I think it's actually probably more than 2,000. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Workers' Justice Project has played a key role in the creation of two Brooklyn-based worker centers, a new union, Laborers Local 10, and alternative economic models to increase wages and safety standards for construction and domestic workers who live here in New York. So without further ado, Lahita Guapa, welcome to WBAI. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So we, I just talked a little bit, a little bit about the work that you do, but you tell us more about the Workers' Justice Project. Why did you found it? What sort of spurred you to uh, to launch this organization? Absolutely. Um, well, my own personal experience as a as a daughter of immigrant workers, an immigrant myself, um, and the fact that uh, we need a safe space to make sure that we improve the working conditions. And as Workers' Justice Project, um, that's what we do. We organize workers uh, from the streets to the apps and to transform industries to be a driver and a source of quality jobs. Um, we have been playing a central role of Lifeline uh, as a safety net entry point educator advocate um, to all workers. Um, who are organizing and, and, and fighting and working and are entering in the 21st century um, industry for the first time. Um, and we're proud to do that since 2010. And we, we are proud to be building organizing power in the streets. And Lahia, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, uh, that was my typo in my notes. Give us a, 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 an estimate on the number of people that you support in the city. It's, it's as, as Celeste noted, it's way, it's got to be way larger than 2,000. About how many people, you know, are part of this sector? Yeah. So WJP um, has a membership of 15,000 members who are part of Workers' Justice Project. Um, but um, the organization has embarked on a on a three-year-long campaign um, as Los Deliveristas Unidos to bring 
um, Fair Labor Standards Protection um, for 60,000 app delivery workers who keep New Yorkers fed and safe. So the reason I, I we definitely wanted to have you on this show, there's been, you know, movement, there's been an, a debate that's been happening as, as far as uh, the mandatory increase in the minimum wage for a number of the delivery workers. There was a, a court ruling or action last week. I'd love for you to just educate us and educate our listeners on this movement for the mandatory increase in the minimum wage and where things stand now, because I think this is important for people to understand about why this was needed and how it's been at least temporarily stopped for now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Los Deliberistas Unidos started in 2020, right in the midst of the pandemic, um, um, organizing um, to change some of um, their conditions um, that they're experiencing uh, from be- earning sub-minimum wages, such as $7.87, um, about more than half of the industry reporting that they were experiencing car, car accidents or any other injuries without having health insurance, um, to um, really transforming and bringing six labor protections for the first time in history. And one of them happens to be the right to have a minimum pay. Um, many people don't realize how how little this massively profitable app companies actually pay to workers. Um, when we did the research, um, and many workers have reported that these apps pay around $4 an hour to workers who are independent contractors and responsible for their own um, operating expenses and receive no benefits whatsoever. And the Liberistas have long been expecting, have been playing a central role by delivering meals, um, not just today, but you, throughout the pandemic, during floods, toxic um, smoke events, extreme heat. Um, and in order to provide to their families in exchange, what they're receiving is pennies on the dollar from these multi-billion dollar companies. And they, they risk their own lives um, without receiving um, benefits, health insurance, um, and many of them are struggling to feed their own families. And this is why we're asking for a minimum pay. Um, but unfortunately, we, we want a city council um, and um, the mayor in the rulemaking process. Um, it was delayed for seven months. Um, and when we finally were expecting to implement the law this week, um, the 12th, which is yesterday, uh, the companies decided to sue. Um, to again, once again um, delay the process and um, so they don't have to actually pay a minimum pay to workers. And that's what we're fighting now. We're in the, um, the city having a big um, legal battle to defend uh, the protections that we won uh, three years ago. And you're listening to Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We are speaking with Lejia Gualpa, the executive director of the Workers' Justice Project, and we're going to open the phones back up. Lots of uh, listener interaction this hour. We hope 212-209-2877. Call in 212-209-2877. The phone lines are open right now.
Uh, Lehia, I'm interested. I'm glad we're talking about this today because uh, I think that, you know, a lot of us maybe have thought about the idea of uh, certain groups of workers that people rely on all the time, but tend to be sort of invisible. We don't think of them when we think about, uh, you know, other kinds of workers. I'm curious, based on that, do you think attitudes towards delivery workers and these kinds of workers have woken up or changed at all because of the pandemic when so many people were really, really relying on them? Are are people like sort of waking up to this issue more now or was the pandemic one thing and now it's sort of over and, and people are back to not paying attention? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what the pandemic did is it agitated workers to organize and rise up um, and, 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 and demand better working conditions which in result, what we created is, make, is making them visible um, and visualizing the issues and exploitation they were experiencing. Um, the Los Deliveristas Unidos actually was born out of that anger, out of that frustration, out of the exploitation that Deliveristas were experiencing in the streets of New York. Um, and, and to change that narrative that they're not just workers, they're essential New Yorkers who are keeping the lives of New Yorkers, um, saving New Yorkers' lives, uh, keeping their restaurants afloat. Um, and, and this is why we actually were able to win six historic labor protections and being the first city in the country to win and establish a minimum pay um, that we still need to make sure that it's fully implemented. Um, and I think what... what has happened is that, you know, we have visualized the work. I think many, there is a conversation about what is a deliverista, who is a deliverista, um, but there is so much more still to do um, um, to make sure that people really understand what it takes to, this, to do this work. Many people under, underestimate how hard this work it is, that it is, that it is not easy and is one of the deadliest jobs right now in New York City. Um, the way these apps have constructed the algorithms to give deliveristas 15 minutes to deliver an order regardless of any restaurant delays, traffic crimes, or what other issues they might be experiencing, um, creates a lot of mental stress to deliver um, food, medicine across the city. Um, and this is why deliveristas are still fighting to make sure that these companies pay a livable wage uh, or at least a minimum wage. You know, and, and Leah, there was something I did not realize at all. There was a, uh, a guest column in today's New York Daily News by the commissioner of the New York City Department of Consumer and Worker Protection, where she had mentioned something I, d- I did not realize that uh, that a lot of the expenses that uh, these folks were talking about, um, you know, have to, they get saddled with that they're paying out of pocket for all their job related expenses, their e-bikes, batteries, phones to access an app, data plan, safety gear. I don't think a lot of people realize all of the I- expenses that they also incur while they're earning, you know, as you, you noted, what, $4 an hour or they're, or they're earning such little pay for this. Can you just expand on that a little about all the expenses they have to endure themselves that the companies are not picking up? Absolutely. Um, Many New Yorkers don't understand that um, because they're working as gig workers um, and as independent contractors um, for these multi-billion dollar app delivery companies. And as independent contractors, they're completely excluded from 
labor protections, which means that the companies don't have to pay minimum wage and can actually uh, make them responsible for all legally making them responsible for their all their operating expenses. Um, and this is why even in their contract, um, they make sure that delivery companies, I mean, the workers, uh, in order to start their work, they have a bike, they have all, everything, making them responsible. Um, and this is part of the problem, right? The, the fact that this is gig work and the fact that most workers um, are not considered workers under the law, and this is why we passed a package of six legislation, including the minimum pay, to ensure that workers have the protections, but also have the right to earn a minimum pay like any other worker in New York, um, working in one of not only the one of the most dangerous industries in New York, but one, doing one of the most essential jobs, which is keep New Yorkers fed and safe. Um, and that's why we're organizing and fighting. And, and now our big fight is to make sure that we stop, that workers get get that minimum pay that they deserve and they earn it. We're speaking with Lejia Gualpa, Executive Director of the Workers' Justice Project. You can call in right now if you have questions, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. This is WBAI. And Lejia, I was wondering if you think that there are common misperceptions about delivery workers, if there are th other things that you think people really don't know or don't understand. Like, for example, I think that people maybe look at the restaurant industry and they say, well, it doesn't really matter if servers don't make the same kind of money as other workers because they live off all these tips and they're getting rich. People are stuffing money into their hands. And, you know, in a lot of places, that is really, really not the case. So curious to, to hear what you think about, about those kinds of attitudes, that maybe these delivery workers are doing great because people are, are uh, enhancing their income with these super big tips. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that um, we live in New York, and, and not only in New York, but I think with, throughout the country. Um, you know, rent is high, um, and these are essential workers who not only work in New York City, but they live in New York City, and they need to feed their families. Um, and many people don't un underestimate uh, how hard this work it is. And on top of you know working through extreme weather, through a pandemic, um, many of, of the 65,000 delivery staff are, are experiencing other issues from track, traffic accidents. In our report, we find out that 54% of app delivery workers um, mentioned that they were victims of bike death. About 30% they were physically assaulted during robberies. Um, it is one of the, you know, one of the most dangerous jobs that exist in New York. And everything to make sure that they can feed their families. The other one is that, as it was recently mentioned, the liberistas have to upfront almost ten to fifteen thousand dollars in operating cost from their gear, from their bikes, and now even transitioning to buying UL certified batteries. Everything comes at a high operating cost that at this moment apps are not responsible. Workers 
have to invest so much money in order to do this work. So it's not only one of the most dangerous jobs for workers to do this job, but it's also one of the most expensive jobs. And it requires a large investment in order to do this work with the hope to be able to feed their own families. And that is what is not fair. We strongly believe a minimum wage is the least what essential workers who are keeping New Yorkers fed and safe deserve. Um, and that is a minimum wage, like any other worker. So let's bring on uh, one of our callers. We've got a caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. You are on the air. What is your name and what's on your mind today? My name is uh, Denise. And what's on my mind? I'm so sorry. I'm very grateful for this program. I never knew about gig workers and what they're going through. So I'm going to ask that this particular sister say her name again and the contact information for her organization again slowly. In addition to that, I'm hoping that other producers are listening into each other's program so that we can have more information about gig workers and how the listeners and the general public can support them. I will tell you, my sister, I don't remember your name because you said it very quickly, I will give a definite better tip than I do now, and I'll be much more considerate when I see uh, delivery workers going forward. Thank you so much for what you uh imparted to us thus far. And again, please give your name again and the contact information, uh, if at all possible. If you have a, a contact number as well, maybe uh, listeners can connect you with some people who can help you in what you are trying to accomplish for uh, pay and uh, different uh, accoutrements so that you can do your job. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, Denise. Lahia, if you'd like to respond. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Um for showing solidarity. And I wanted to say something. Many customers don't realize that um, most what, most of, of the pay that deliveristas rely on as their main source of income are the tips. Um, the base pay of these delivery companies are less than, le- less than four hours, sometimes for 30, 40, even an hour um, delivery. Um, we are inviting consumers to join um, this campaign, customers um, to make sure that we build um, a, you know, responsible industry. Um, and we're inviting them to join our campaign that is Consumers Delivering Justice to join. Um, and they can find a lot of information about our campaign there. We also have our center's phone number, which is 347 um, and consumers have a lot of power and a say in building a more responsible um, and ethical industry. And, uh, Leah, I know we only have about a minute or two left. I wanted to throw in another question because, you know, it's been on my mind. I've been following all the coverage about the tens of thousands of migrants that have come here to New York City over the last year. I'm curious how this has impacted your work. What has the Workers' Justice Project been able to do to support the migrants that have been coming to the city? Absolutely. Um, as a worker center, we have been in the front line responding to the needs of newly arrived immigrants, uh, making sure that uh, my newly arrived migrants have knowledge about their rights as workers, especially if they're enter- entering in the industry, uh, making sure that they also have access to resources in order to get access to basic services, 
from getting their health insurance to making sure that they have their city IDs uh, to navigating New York City as a whole as they're searching for jobs. So we do have skill building trainings, health and safety trainings, and really even connecting them with responsible employers through our community job centers. Uh, we are committed. Many newly arrived immigrants, um, their main goal is to be able to contribute to the economy um, of New York City with their labor. So we're making sure that, you know, they can contribute, but they also know about their rights um, in the city of New York. And our goal is to keep organizing because the newly arrived um, immigrant workforce um, is, is the future of our city's economy. And we're making sure that as many joined um, different industries such as construction, uh, the cleaning industry, even app delivery. Um, they have the ability to raise their voices, organize, and keep transforming their industry. So we're, we're excited to be able to be in the front lines to support, um, and we're looking forward to partnering with the city to do much more um, as they become an essential part of our city's economy. Leah Gualpa, we always wish we had more time, but we want to thank you for coming on today to discuss your work with the Workers' Justice Project. Thank you for inviting me. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI, and as we wind it up, we just want to take one moment to remind you, if you care about New York, if you care about having a radio station that talks about how to make this city a better place for everybody, regardless of your gender, identity, race, ethnicity, take a moment today. Go to WBAI.org and lend your support. This station does not exist without you. That is a fact. And we need your help. Please go to WBAI.org. Become a member of the BAI Buddies program. It only takes a moment. You can give a recurring donation in any amount you choose. That is WBAI.org. We want to thank today's guests, Rafael Espinal of the Freelance Workers Union and Lejia Gualpa, Executive Director of the Workers Justice Project. Jeff, you're back on the air Sunday? Yep, I will be back here on Sunday, 8 o'clock in the morning with uh, City Watch. My co-host, Carlos Menchaca, and I are going to be taking you up to the Bronx. We're going to talk with Bronx Borough President Vanessa Gibson and also Misha Porter, the former New York City Schools Chancellor, who now serves as the Bronx Community Foundation's inaugural president and CEO. Again, that starts at 8 o'clock this Sunday. Make sure to tune in. Thank you so much for tuning in today's edition of Driving Forces. We're going to be off next week, but we're back on the, let's see, that's we're back on the 27th. Celeste is promising a very enlightening show that day. Right, Celeste? Of course. Of course. <laughs> so, again, we upload, or rather Celeste, uploads every edition of our program to SoundCloud, Apple, and Stitcher. You can subscribe, never miss a show. So don't forget to check us out there and also follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Until next, or until two weeks from now, we hope you have a great summer. We'll see you on the radio on the 27th. Have a great day. <laughs>